0: And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore, this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood." It's blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. It has been said, and I think well, that the whole story of the Bible, indeed the whole of human history, rides on the current of blood. Think about that picture. A river of blood that carries the whole of human history. Starts already in Genesis 4. The blood of Abel crying out to God from the ground for justice. And of course, in the Exodus, the first plague was turning the river Nile, the waters of the Nile, into blood. At the Passover, blood was placed on the doorposts of the house to prevent the angel of death from striking down the firstborn. The opening chapters of Leviticus spelled out in great detail how approach to God requires the careful use of blood. If you're going to come into the presence of God, you're not going to get there without blood. Here in chapter 17, right after showing us the, the way back into the most holy place, the way back to the presence of God or forward to the presence of God, the very first thing God says is to remind his people not to eat blood. Eating or drinking blood is a consistently cursed thing. Uh, Revelation 16:6 6 speaks of this. After the third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and springs, they become blood. Echo of the Exodus plagues. And the angel of the waters says, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So the the title of tonight's sermon should sound horribly disconcerting to you. Unless you drink his blood, you have no life in you. That is a nonsense statement from the perspective of all of biblical history. And yet, it's what Jesus says in John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, now, when Jesus said that, it caused many of his disciples, many of those who had been following him, to be like, we're done. This guy, this, no way. Drinking blood, that's It's not just just Moses who said, don't do that. God said that to Noah. This is something that has been part of biblical tradition ever since the days of Noah. There's no possible way that somebody could say, drink my blood, and that's a, a meaningful, positive statement. It's just crazy talk. Although, if you pay attention to what's going on here in Leviticus 17, Leviticus 17 is what makes sense of why does Jesus say this? Why is Jesus' blood the only blood that anybody should ever drink? And of course, and that's not even a literal drinking of the blood, but figuratively, why does why does this make sense? Well, we start with flesh, you'll, you'll notice. There's two parts of the passage. There's flesh and blood. It's for, I, I would I'm going to suggest that John six, when Jesus says that line about eating his flesh, drinking his blood he's very explicitly referring back to Levit- Leviticus 17. This is, this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at. And we start with the admonition to Aaron and his sons to, and to all the people saying, you know, this is the thing the Lord commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in the front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. The blood of an animal. Let's be really clear. He shed blood. He, it's an ox, a sheep, a goat. He killed an animal and he's got blood guilt. Okay. How, how can you be guilty of bloodshed if you just killed an animal for dinner? Well, if you want to have meat for dinner and you're living in the wilderness camp then you need to bring that animal to the tabernacle and slaughter it there and offer the fat, the liver, and the kidneys uh, as as in part of the peace offering, give the priest a portion, and take the rest home. Now, it's also worth noting that this regulation only applied to the wilderness camp. Once Israel enters the land, there's a new regulation. Deuteronomy 12 says that if you live far away from the tabernacle, (laughs) because obviously in the wilderness camp this works, everybody is a short walk away from the tabernacle everybody can just walk right up to the tabernacle and take care of this but once they're in the land you're going to be a long ways away how do you follow what god requires and in deuteronomy 12 god says that if they are far away from the tabernacle they can slaughter animals in their own towns as long as they follow the the root, the, the slaughter routine of the tabernacle so in other words you, you, you. When you kill it, you drain out all the blood and pour it on the ground, um, and that's so. It's not actually bringing it as an offering, but it's like an offering. But this short duration of this regulation did not render it pointless. In fact, this is something that has been building up throughout our whole study of Leviticus, and we can't avoid it anymore. How, how is the death of Christ a sacrifice? Because. This, I mean, we're, just, we're being told here that any offering, any sacrifice must be brought to the tabernacle. Jesus never died. He never, he never got near the temple the day he died. He was taken outside the camp and slaughtered there. This is not a place of sacrifice. This is not a place of offerings. This is actually something contrary to what, where an offering should be made. According to the Levitical rule, Every offering is killed at the tabernacle. And so, but Hebrews, when Hebrews, and we've seen how Hebrews reflects on this, when Jesus offered himself, where did he offer himself? We We oftentimes talk about Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, and it's true, he did shed blood on the cross, but that's not where he made atonement for us. He made atonement for us when he brought his blood into the heavenly holy of holies and presented his blood there. After all, as we saw last time, as long as the earthly sanctuary is standing, it was a reminder that the way into the heavenlies was shut. What Jesus does in his, in his offering up of himself, he's, he offers up himself to God and so his he is not following the levitical rule this is part of the point that that hebrews is making about how what, what what order of priest is jesus is he of the order of aaron no he's of the order of melchizedek part of the point that hebrews is making is that jesus offers his blood to god in the heavenly holy of holies not the earthly holy of holies when christ appeared hebrews 9 verse 11 when christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not the earthly ones the heavenly ones not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So when Christ is crucified outside the camp, think about what the, what the, what the Jews are saying. The chief priests are saying, this cannot be an offering. Because offerings would be made at the temple. So for Jesus to be sent outside the camp to die, outside the city, this this is emphasizing he is cursed. He is far away from God. But this was part of God's point. Jesus is taken outside the camp. Why? Well, Hebrews 13 reflects on this. Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar... From which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. Think about, remember the sin offering. The sin offering, the, the, the flesh of the sin offering is burned outside the camp. The, the blood is offered in the holy place, the flesh is, is burned outside the camp. And so Hebrews says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us... Notice Hebrews now has has a very clear, oh, if this is what happened to Jesus, what does that mean for us? Well, Hebrews says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Notice that Hebrews 13 says that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In order for Jesus to be a full and perfect atonement for the sins of his people, he had to suffer outside the camp. Only then could his blood sanctify us. And also notice that Hebrews speaks of an altar from which we eat. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now this altar is not an earthly altar. Jesus invites us to his heavenly altar so that we might partake of his flesh and blood. Here in Leviticus 17, we, we're starting with flesh. We'll, we'll, all, we'll talk about blood at the moment. But in verses 5 to 7, we hear of the purpose of this regulation here regarding flesh. In the wilderness, in verses 5 through 7, every time you ate meat, it was a peace offering. If you're going to eat meat, it's going to be part of the, it's going to be a peace offering, a covenant meal that you make, you're you're, you're, uh, eating with God. Every time you eat meat, you bring the animal to the tabernacle and slaughter it there. Uh, the reference to goat demons in verse 7 suggests that when we, we heard last time at the For the Day of Atonement ritual that one of the goats was sent out to Azazel. Well, Azazel is in later, in later Jewish thought reflects is, is a name of a goat demon. So it's quite likely that that's actually all goes all the way back to this time. And this is said to be a statute for them throughout their generations. Now, of course, the, the foreverness of the, princi- of the statute has to do with the principle, not the detail, because, well, obviously, once they come into the land, as Deuteronomy 12:15 says, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. In other words, follow the same principle of slaughtering that's used at the tabernacle. Drain the blood out. Which will serve as a reminder of the tabernacle in all your towns. Now, this is—if you think about it—in the Old Testament, their their principle was you have to do basically follow something like the tabernacle tabernacle ritual every time you eat meat. It's the same principle that leads us to pray before our meals. Where does where does Scripture say we should pray before a meal? I mean, actually, the there there's no requirement of this, but just as Israel butchered meat in a way that re- would remind them of the offerings, so also we approach our daily meals in a way that reminds us of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Just as, just as we give thanks before the Eucharist every Sunday, we also give thanks as we partake of our meals in our homes every day. And verses 8 to 9 then emphasize the, the penalty of breaking the statute that anyone of the house of israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the lord that man shall be cut off from his people you know the burnt offering is supposed to be an ascension offering as the smoke ascends to god the animal is transformed by fire into smoke that goes up to god in our place and a sacrifice is a peace offering a all through the Old Testament when you see the word sacrifice it's referring to the peace offerings. And so the burnt offering the ascension offering is entirely burned in the fire as a way of saying we are here to ascend the hill of the Lord. And the peace offering the sacrifice is where we have fellowship with God. We have peace with God and with each other. So why does God say that the man who eats meat away from the sanctuary should be cut off from his people? Well, think back to Adam and Eve after the fall. God clothed them with animal skins. They had tried fig leaves. God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to give you, I'm going to clothe you in animal skins. And in order to get animal skins, what had to happen? The animal had to die. Already there's a principle here. the, The animal's death covers Adam and Eve. If you're going to kill an animal and eat its flesh, then its life, its blood, is poured out for you. And its strength, its flesh, is consumed by you. To eat meat apart from God is to say we don't need God. It's why Jesus will say, my flesh is real food. Every sacrifice in all of history had pointed to him from those animals that gave their skins for Adam and Eve to the animals that were slaughtered for meat in the towns of Israel. And, by the way, This is why happy pigs are important. (laughs) I know, pigs were unclean in the Old Testament. But the principle that Leviticus 17 teaches us is that how we think about flesh and blood applies to animals. That flesh and blood is not just about humans. It also includes other living things. The meat that you eat is supposed to point you to Jesus. And as good stewards of creation, you should want your meat to be treated properly. I've heard of in some religions, they ask forgiveness of the animals that they eat. That's going too far. But there's usually a seed of truth in every erroneous practice. The point that we see, need to see here is the animal that you eat is also flesh and blood. At the creation, when God made the animals, they became nefesh haya, living souls. When God created man, man became a nefesh haya, a living soul. If you kill an animal that could be used as sacrifice in some other way, then God says you are guilty of shedding blood and you're cut off from God's people. We saw this morning about our, the dominion that God gave to man. Dominion means lordship and how we rule is important. We should exercise lordship over the creatures the way that Christ exercises lordship over us. It's the way we treat the, the, the lower creation if you think about it, uh, the lower creation is probably, safe to say, closer to us in terms of orders of magnitude than we are from God. God is infinite. We are finite. Other creatures are also finite like us. We are more closely related to animals than we are to God in re- with respect to creation. The difference is that with respect to, you might say, personality, God created us in his image and so he made us to reflect him and so that means the way that we treat the lower creation is really important and for us to sort of treat it in a slovenly way is not proper much of big food today is ruthless greedy and deceitful and it shows in the way they treat the animals under their care so how you treat flesh is important Uh, You may have noticed that the central concern is in how you slaughter the animal to make sure that the the blood is thrown on the altar or in Deuteronomy when the broader uh, principle is allowed of of slaughtering meat in your towns, the principle was that the blood should be poured out on the ground. Uh, You think about how the altar is made of stone and so if you have no altar, then the ground is the closest approximation. So flesh and blood are being or the, they're, they're connected and they go together except when you're eating. This is where the transition comes in verse 10 to the question of then eating blood. Why does God forbid Israel to eat blood? Well, it's because the life of the flesh is in the blood. When Virginia went through a more than her own blood in the hospital after Geneva was born, um, it was really interesting to see the change in Virginia when she was running through other people's blood. Because there's so, I mean, Moses isn't necessarily thinking about modern science when he says this, but there's so much in your blood that is unique and distinctive to you. And so when your blood is gone and you got some, now they, they do pretty well at, at stripping out all the a lot of the Extra stuff from people's blood, but still, when you get blood transfusions, it's other people's blood running through your veins, and it's not surprising that a person's personality can change a little bit when they go through a lot of other people's blood. Um, so, I mean, when when God says the life is in the blood, He ain't kidding. And God has given blood. For you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, Moses says. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Think about that. The life of the animal is in its blood. So if the animal's life is offered for yours, then for you to eat the blood would mean for you to partake of the life that was given for you. And of course, the animal died in your place... So if the animal died in your place, then for you to eat its blood would be to partake of its death. Now, if any of you are thinking, but we do that with the blood of Christ, absolutely. And that's the point. We partake of Christ's life when we partake of his blood. What's the difference? And why is this... Only and absolutely possible in the case of Jesus and never, ever, ever possible in the case of anybody, anything, any animal ever before or since. One word. Resurrection. All those animals, are they still dead? Yeah. Those animals died and stayed dead. Eating their blood means partaking of Death. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen from the dead and sitting at the right hand of the Father. When you partake of his blood, that is blood that has passed through death into life. And so therefore, what you're partaking of is not just his death, but also of his resurrection life. If Christ was still dead, there would be no life to partake of. That's why you don't eat blood the animal is dead its life was spent for you its its blood was shed for you even even the roast beef that you had this afternoon that animal died for you so that you might live you might you know, have a nice beef dinner to partake of its blood would still be to partake of death not life The death of the animal became your death, and so the life of the animal is what enabled you to draw near to God. For you to eat of that life would be to join the animal in death. And verses 13 and 14 highlight the importance of this. Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. So it's not just the sacrifices, it's also any animal that you may eat. And think about the rationale that Leviticus 17 uses. The life of all flesh is its blood. Uh, The ESV says in verse 14, the life of every creature, but it's actually, in Hebrew, it's simply the life of all flesh. And thinking about what Leviticus 17 is doing with flesh and blood, let's not just say every creature. It's the life of all flesh is its blood. You shall not eat the blood of any flesh. So every time you see the word creature there, it's actually in Hebrew, it's the word flesh. Flesh and blood go together. If you're going to eat the flesh, I mean, obviously the animal must die. It must pour out its life, its blood for you. So don't eat the blood unless you want to die. That's, that's the point of whoever eats it shall be cut off. It's not saying shall be put to death. It's not because God, God's not saying go around and kill everybody who eats blood. He's saying, no, they shall be cut off from their people. They, they, they're cut off. It's not that they actually die, but it's, it's a sort of a spiritual death. It's sort of an excommunication. And notice also the extension of the principle in verses 15 and 16. Um, everyone who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, notice the mildness of how this is put. It, it, no one should deliberately, for no good reason, make himself unclean. That's, becoming unclean is not a good thing. But what about a poor man who comes upon a deer that has just been killed by a wildcat? Well, that poor man who's like, ooh, you know, my family could have a good dinner tonight. I don't have any way of getting meat for them any other way. I could could use this. So what does he do? Well, the, the provision says if he washes his clothes and bathes himself in water, he'll be unclean until the evening. And next morning he'll be clean again. That's not so bad. Yes, I will take uncleanness upon myself. I'm moving in a direction away from the holy place. That's not a good thing. But my family needs to eat. Actually, when you when you think about cleanness and uncleanness in this way, there's a very there's all sorts of these moments in the law of Moses. There's a clear trajectory towards God, towards the holy, the way that we should go. This is the, it's pointing in the right direction, but there's also a recognition that within the common, you think about there's the, there's the holy and the common, and then within the common there's the clean and the unclean, and within the unclean there's the ordinary, ordinary unclean, and then there's the abomination that leaves a lot of gradations. It means that there are situations where, yeah, okay, I'll be unclean till evening. That's, that's not so bad. Now, going toward abomination? No, not going there. But there is a thing that is, you might say, mildly unclean. And it's, so, you know, how, how do we think about this today? It's important to recognize that the prohibition against eating blood is not original to Moses. It goes back to Noah. When God blessed Noah in Genesis 9 after the flood, he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, echoing the creation blessing upon Adam. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. came from the Noahic covenant and thus applies to all humanity it's by the way also why the apostles include the prohibition in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 the Jerusalem council was asked uh, whether Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to become Christians do they need to be circumcised do they need to observe the law of Moses and the answer was no as Peter puts it in Acts 15 verse 10 Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So the Jerusalem council decides, no, the Mosaic law is not to be imposed upon the Gentiles. But what does the council say the Gentiles should do? In Acts 15, verses 28 and 29, they say, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, Gentile Christians, no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. In other words, this is basically the provisions of the Noahic covenant. And some people say, oh, well, it says that they were to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, but then Paul says, he'll he'll allow people to uh, uh, eat things that have been sacrificed at idol temples, Notice how Paul does it. Paul distinguishes between the point of the prohibition. Now, when it said, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, what does that mean? Did that mean, oh, if the animal was slaughtered at a temple, don't eat it? Or did it mean, don't partake of idol feasts? This is the point they run into in Corinth where the Corinthians are like, okay, everything sold in the meat market was slaughtered at a temple. So does that mean we can't eat meat at all? And Paul says, no, no. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market with, with a clear conscience. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If somebody tells you this was offered to idols, oh, then don't eat that. But Paul's point, and Paul is really firm on the do not go to the idol temples. Do not, and in those, if you, if, you, if you study the Corinthian context, pretty much in those days, Restaurants, restaurants. Uh, we're basically surrounding temples, and so this is where you would go, and you would have a feast with your patron, and you'd be, and there'd be a sacrifice, and so basically, you're participating in idolatry every time you go to a restaurant. And so, Paul's like, "Hey, you can't do that." Now, if you just if you just go to the go to the store, go you know, go to the market and buy a, a cut of meat and take it home and eat it. That's not what the Jerusalem Council was talking about. The Jerusalem Council was not being nitpicky about where was it slaughtered. The Jerusalem Council was saying, do not participate in idolatry. Do not participate in idol feasts. And in the same way, the Jerusalem Council says that, uh, that we, we should not engage in sexual immorality. I, I hope there's no controversy over that one. Uh, you know, sexual immorality is still wrong. Actually, we'll get a chance to hear more about that in future weeks as Leviticus works through some of those issues. And so then we're left with blood and things strangled. And actually, there's a re- the connection between them is that when you kill an animal by strangling, the blood will tend to pool and coagulate in the animal, and so you'll tend to have a lot more blood in the meat. The apostles are, are telling us that the Noahic covenant is still in force. When you slaughter an animal, you should drain its blood. And the way that Paul handles things sacrificed to idols provides the key to understanding abstaining from blood as well. Because the point is not that, oh, one drop of blood pollutes the meat. Actually, it's almost impossible to actually get every drop of blood out of a carcass. That's not going to happen. The point is to make a good faith effort to drain the blood properly. And I know, know Christians have disagreed on this point for a long time, but... I wind up saying, the apostles said that Gentiles like us should obey this. And they have God's covenant with Noah to back them up and say, no, Christians should not be eating blood. And that's why what Jesus does is so important and so shocking. Jesus says we must eat his flesh. That wasn't so surprising. If he's the sacrifice, of course we must eat his flesh. But that we must also drink his blood. Because he is the one sacrifice who was raised from the dead. And because he's the one sacrifice who was raised from the dead, his flesh and his blood go together. We saw very clearly earlier that flesh and blood go together except when you're eating. But the resurrection changes this. In all sacrifices before the resurrection, flesh and blood had to be separated in order to accomplish their purpose. The flesh had, be, had to be parted from the blood in order for the sacrifice to work. But in the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection brings a holy flesh and blood back together so that Christ's holy flesh becomes our true spiritual food and Christ's holy blood becomes our true spiritual drink that we might partake of the whole Christ as we partake of him in the bread and the cup today and that's where as we as we come week by week to the lord's table we are reminded that we are partaking of christ and this is and his one his once for all sacrifice is the one sacrifice that does provide true spiritual nourishment for all god's people for all of our lives so let's pray Oh Lord, our God, thank you for your provision for us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that in Him you have given us that one atoning sacrifice that has forever removed our sin and our guilt. Thank you for forgiving us life in Him, and have mercy upon us and help us that we might that we might humbly walk before you. That we might trust you. That we might know your your mighty power. Thank you that in His resurrection there is now a holy flesh and blood that through which we may now enter your presence and partake of your life and for this this we marvel and we thank you lord have mercy upon us and help us and strengthen us by your holy spirit that we might walk before you have mercy O lord upon all those who are weak and frail and those who are afflicted and downcast and, and and struggling with discouragement and anxiety and and depression Lord, help those who are who are afflicted by bodily ailments and grant to them your peace. Lord, have mercy upon those who are tempted and grant them to hold fast to Jesus and, and flee from the devil. Grant, O oh Lord, to those who, who walk in darkness that you would shine the light of your gospel upon them, that they might see the glory of your Son, our Lord, that through your great mercy, you might call them to repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus. Help us, O oh Lord, as we walk before the watching world, that, that they might see in us and, and hear from us the glorious gospel, that as they see the light, the light of Christ in us, may they may they ask and may, may you give us wisdom to answer wisely of the hope that is in us, that we might show them the glory of Jesus. And Father, we, we ask that, that, that your gospel would go forth in this community, that your, your word would, would shine forth in the darkness, and bring the light of the good news to those who are perishing that they might that they might turn from their sin and believe in Jesus may may your light shine forth throughout all the earth that in every land and in every nation that your your light would go forth that even even this day as your word has gone forth throughout all the nations that even so it would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it that those that those who walk in darkness might see the light and and that your, your people might be built up in faith, hope, and love, that there might be a, a holy people, a holy flesh and blood, who walk before you, trusting that you will bring us all to that glorious day when we will see him as he is. And as we go to our rest now this night, we pray that you would strengthen us and grant to us your peace. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.